Before I welcome on yet another amazing guest of the Live Inspired podcast, I wanted to extend my most sincere thank you to each and every one of you for listening in your car, on the bus, while you're training for your next 5K, however you're listening. You, my friends, are a critically important and valued member of our Live Inspired community. If you ever want to get in touch with me, I'm always available on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And you can always send me an email anytime at your convenience to podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that email, podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. So let's dive into today's episode. You are going to love it. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Question for you on the front side of this podcast. Have you ever had that feeling like you're just not enough? Ever had that one? You ever feel beat down by the monotony or the adversity or the loneliness or the pace or the whatever of your day? Well, our guest today has a wonderful way of speaking to the normal events of life with humor and authenticity and insight. She's going to remind you that the little things in life aren't so little that no one is cuter than you and that the best days of your life are yet to come, but you've got to look on it with the bright side. My friends, I want you to buckle up, open wide your hearts, your minds, and your journals as we prepare to visit with four-time New York Times bestselling author, blogger, podcaster, mother, and official herder of two wild dogs. Her name and my friend is Melanie Schenkel. Melanie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. For the nine people who somehow have never heard the name Melanie Shankle, don't follow your blog, don't know about your work, haven't read your books, give us your own snapshot into what you are all about today. I don't, you made it sound so good. I don't know that I can add on to that, but I am a mother. I'm a wife. I've been married to my husband, Perry, for 22 years. We have an only child, a 16-year-old daughter who's a junior in high school, so I would appreciate any and all prayers to that <laughs> end. And we live in San Antonio, Texas, and I started a blog back in 2006 just as a hobby and a way to write and have that outlet and have watched it just become um, turned into books. And I think at this point, I've written five books and two devotionals. I have a children's book and a Bible study that's out, kind of more than I ever even imagined when I went on blogspot.com back in 2006 and typed a couple of words on a computer. It's pretty amazing. I I don't think the majority of us plan our lives and the way they ultimately end up. But I would imagine back in 2006, you had no idea early in 2020, you'd be (laughs) on three podcasts today. You'd be talking about this book that you have coming out, that you'd be raising a 16-year-old and dogs and the life that you've lived. Uh, But instead of talking about today, 2020, and instead of talking about what started in 2006, I want to back up even farther because I feel like I know a lot about what you had for dinner last night, what you wore the week before. (laughs) Like I've read your stuff, I really enjoy, but I wanna learn a little bit about growing up. I think who we were as kids influenced who we become as adults. So just talk about your life growing up for a little bit. Where were you raised? 
I was raised in Houston, Texas. I was an oldest child. I have a younger sister who's four years younger than me. Really grew up kind of in an, just an interesting dynamic. Just my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And I always say that that colors your life. You know, at eight years old, you don't really think about it. It just means dad has a cool apartment with a swimming pool that you get to go to. But when I look back at how that affected so much of my life, I realized what an impact it had on me. I'm a people pleaser by nature. That's that's my tendency. And I think how much that has been exacerbated when you're the oldest child. And I felt like it was always my job to make everybody happy with my own two hands. Mm. to not cause any conflict and to make sure that everybody was happy and just try to balance that. So just kind of an interesting journey. And then when my after my parents divorced, eventually when I was in junior high, my mom moved us to Beaumont, Texas, which is where her parents lived at the time, which, you know, seventh grade is a great time to make a move because it's a time when you really feel great about yourself. Right. You know, your A game, you've nope. got your braces on your teeth. <laughs> And you're so awkward. You know, at that time in my life, I thought blue eyeshadow was a good choice. You know, so for a lot of reasons, and all of a sudden you're thrown in to this mix. And and Beaumont's a smaller town where I felt like all these kids had grown up together forever and had all gone to school together forever. So I, I feel like I don't think I even realized until I was an adult how much I always felt like I was on the outside looking in mm. in a lot of ways and never really belonged. And then to me, that really changed when I went off to, I went to Texas A&M in 1989 after I graduated from high school. And that trajectory really changed my life just in terms of that's when my faith became real to me. Um, That's when I met my friends that had become my lifelong friends. That's when I found a family that's become like my second family. That to me was such a pivotal time in my life. And, you know, it's funny because I'm a, if you follow anything I do, I'm like a devout Texas Aggie, which they, they tend to brainwash us anyway. That's what A&M does to its students. But I'm so over and above, but I think it's because that place has such a huge part of my heart because of all the gifts that it gave me in my life. So I heard four Fs right there. We're, we're going to go through them one by <laughs> okay. one by one by one because you mentioned <laughs> This is when I found my family, my second family. This is when I found my friends. This is when I found my faith. And this is when I found Aggie football. So uh, we'll we'll end with Aggie football here momentarily. (laughs) I'll let you brag on the Aggies if you'd like. Let's talk about that second family. Who, Who was the second family you found? So the second family was when I was, you'll appreciate this because you're a baseball guy. A&M had a, they don't have female cheerleaders. They have yell leaders, which are guys, Mm -hmm. but they have an organization called Diamond Darlings. We were bat girls for the baseball team. So I spent a lot of time at the baseball field. And one of my fellow Diamond Darlings was a girl named Amy, um, who she was Amy Gully at the time. So I refer to her as Gully in all my books. She's been my lifelong best friend. And we met her freshman year of college and my sophomore year of college. And her whole family was from Bryan, Texas, which is where A&M and College Station and all that is. And so her family really became my second family because, you know, when you're a college student, I mean, what do you like more than maybe free beer is a place to go home and get a home cooked meal and have a place to do laundry and have a house where you can sleep, but it feels like a real place. And so I... I mean, I we've laughed because, I mean, I went to her grandparents' birthday parties. I know her aunts and uncles, and to this day, they're my family. I mean, I, I take my daughter home to visit them. They fix my favorite foods for me, and they just became such a huge part of my heart. Mm. You talked about your faith. 
that you grew up in the way you grew up, the family split apart, that you've struggled with braces and body image and everything <laughs> that the majority of us struggle with. But then you go off to college and you find faith. Talk, talk about your faith journey. You know, I grew up in church and it was kind of a different because my dad was Catholic and my mom was Baptist. And so that's a that's a weird mix. So I had grown up in the Catholic church. And then after my parents divorced, my mom actually started taking us to an assembly of God church. And depending on how much you know, that's a big, that's a big swing. Mm-hmm. That's a big swing from one end of the <laughs> spectrum to the other. And so it kind of left me not knowing what I thought was real. And not that I ever doubted the existence of God, because that to me was always very real. But I just, I think I felt very broken and very beyond repair. And I think in my search, especially in high school and my late teens and early 20s, I think in the search for something that made me feel significant, I turned to so many other things that I felt kind of broken beyond repair, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, to where it just felt like God really couldn't use me or I had messed up too much. And I didn't really, I don't think I comprehended grace at all at that point in my life. There was a Bible study that still goes on at Texas A&M to this day called Breakaway Bible Study. And it was at that time led by a guy named Greg Mott, who's now the head pastor of a church in Houston. But I, a dear friend of mine was like, here's the thing, your life is a little bit of a train wreck and you're going to go to this Bible study with me. Mm. And so I went that night and they played worship songs that I had heard. Here's an interesting fact, just for people who know, the worship leader at the time was Chris Tomlin. Maybe <laughs> maybe you've heard of him. Um, Never heard of him. Move on. <laughs> exactly. Who's that guy? So Chris Tomlin was actually the worship leader And he was up there singing. And I just remember I walked in and I couldn't quit crying. And then when Greg got up and talked, he talked about grace and mercy and how none of us are beyond God's love and his redemption and his forgiveness. And it was, I'm, I'm sure I had heard that before, but it was the first time for me that that ever became real. And I think it was because I was at such a low point in my life. I had just broken off an engagement. I was about to graduate from college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, I think sometimes you have to get to that desperate place to make you cling on to something that's bigger than yourself because you finally realize that yourself isn't enough. That's right. And and that's what happened. So you find your faith. You have a second family. Talk about your friends because you had friends in high school. You had friends early in college, and yet the friends that you develop and and then lean into the rest of your lives are the ones that you meet as an Aggie fan. So talk about your friends. Yeah, I you know I think there's something different, and I tell my daughter this now all the time in high school because I just high school is a weird time, and I I do still have some girlfriends that I had in high school. But I think when you get to college, all of a sudden there's such a big pool to choose from, and you can really find people who share your interest and who are like you in a lot of ways and maybe even not like you in a lot of ways, but you're really drawn to them or something about them. Um, I always say that so much of friendship is sometimes you see a better version of yourself in somebody and Mm -hmm. think, oh, I'm going to latch onto that person to help let them help me become better. Um, But I felt like college too, because there's just no other time in your life where you're so completely immersed in your friends, like during Mm -hmm. those years of college. I mean, you live together, you sleep together, you eat together, you do stupid stuff together. And so it just kind of creates this bond where that just becomes a family. And so there were really four of us, including myself, that just to this to this day, one of one of my dear friends has passed away, but um, that we just all became so tightly bound. And it was really cool to see how each of us kind of rediscovered our faith. And that's become this thread that has 
made those friendships so strong, even though that wasn't really the basis that it started out mm-hmm. all those years ago. Well, the final F you mentioned was football. And I know uh, it's no joke out there in Aggie Nation. So talk about your indoctrination into Aggie football. Oh, listen, I could I could do a whole podcast on Aggie football. I mean, that could be my whole, I am a passionate fan. When I was there, I got there right at the beginning of the R.C. Slocum years. We never lost a home game the entire time I was in school. It was like the early 90s. It was our peak years, which I believe we will see again. I believe. Keep the faith. And, it is. Well, and we say that's the hallmark of an Aggie is that we always, next season, we're going to get them next season. You know, it's always, but I think I have so many fun memories tied to Aggie football. I still love going back to games. But some of the friends that I mentioned when we were in college, we actually worked in the athletic office because if you worked in the athletic office, you got 50 yard line seats to every football game. And so that was like our whole motivation for that job. So I'm a passionate Aggie football fan. You become not only a passionate football fan, a great friend, passionate in your faith, you also become a passionate writer. When did you recognize that you had a gift as an author? You know, it's a funny question because you go back to pieces, because I've really thought about that a lot, because I've always loved to write from the time I could remember. And a story that always comes back to me is when I was in fourth grade, we had to write this creative writing assignment, and it was a story about Christmas. And I remember that I wrote my story, which I still have. It's not very good. But my teacher had me get up and read it in front of the class. And I always wonder if she, now looking back, I mean, I thought she was super old. She was probably 35. I always wonder if she saw something in me that really needed that, but she let me get up and read it in front of the class and it made the class laugh. Mm. And and that sparked something in me where I was like, oh, I think I'm good at this. I, I think I can do this. And so I always wrote as I always had journals growing up, which I, I've thankfully cannot be found because I would be so mortified. Part of me would be curious to know what I wrote, but I think there would be a lot of angst in there that I would rather not see. A lot of bad poetry, I took creative writing classes in college. I, it was always a thing that I loved, and I loved to read. And one of the things I remember is growing up, which I think is so interesting, but even as like an elementary school that Irma Bombeck had like her daily column in the paper, and mm-hmm. I thought she was the funniest, best writer. And I and I think now, what a tribute to her of what a great writer she was that a nine-year-old thought she was funny. But also, it was something in me that was like, I want to do that. Books I loved, I read them over and over again because I loved the way that writer wrote and I would recognize the humor in it. But back in that day, before the internet and all that, to say like, I think I'm going to grow up and write books. I mean, that was like saying, I think I'm going to grow up and probably just live in my parents' basement and not do anything. So so I got to bring that, that forward. Now, <laughs> you, you are so naturally hilarious. And yet frequently people who are funny struggle writing humor. There's difference yeah, between yeah. having a, a glass of coffee and making each other <laughs> laugh than writing a blog post or a chapter where it goes from high emotions where you're wiping your eyes to laughing in the, in the next moment. You, you, you're able to do both. Was that something that you had to develop or was it natural that you just kind of spoke your heart and it was funny on the page? You know, you hate to say, but I really think it's just, here, I've always tried to write like I speak. And mm-hmm. so when I write all my books, I really write it. I don't pay attention to proper grammar, much to my editor's distress. I don't worry about ending sentences with a preposition. I, To me, I just, I write like I'm sitting across the table from you. And so much of what I write is born out of things I've either said to a friend or I've said in conversation or stories I've told, and then I put them on the page. Do you get more nervous when you post something that's very personal? 
or do you get more nervous when you're about to take the stage in front of an audience? Oh, that's a good question. I think the stage in front of an audience for sure. Why is that? Because I think when you go on stage, it's always the thing of you can't edit yourself. And I know in my writing, a lot of times I'll go back and I'll either say, because I think I can also be super sarcastic. And so I can be like, oh, that was a little too harsh Uh or that was too much. (laughs) Or I thought that was funny and it wasn't as funny. Like after I go back, I'm like, ooh, that was maybe a little too hard. And on stage, you know that once those words come out of your mouth, you can't take them back. They're gone. That's it. And you, you know, I mean, in some ways, maybe it's better because at least people can hear your tone and know that you're being sarcastic. But... The stage always makes me more nervous. So, Melanie, I spoke recently, and I will not use any names here, but I I, I set up this joke. It was so awesome. It was awesome. I crushed it, said the final words, put the explanation point behind it, looked out at the audience, and there was nothing, man. I mean, there wasn't even movement. I had to check people's pulses as I walked around the room, and it was a huge room. So I'm curious, when when you get in front of an audience and it's a little bit more lifeless, when there's not as much interaction, and I recognize a lot of times the room is having a conversation with you, but sometimes they choose not to. When you're in front of an audience that's a little bit more stiff, how do you respond? Oh man, that is such a tough one. I feel like, don't you know, you're you're like this as a speaker too, I'm sure, is you can read a room pretty quick. Like I feel like I usually start by trying to be a little funny and lighthearted. And if I don't get them in those first five minutes, if they're just sitting there, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be tough. This <laughs> is, this is, I'm in for a rough road. Usually what I do is I, I tend to then, my talk tends to veer being towards more serious than mm-hmm. funny for the rest of the time, because I... I, whether this is correct or not, I tend to read it as, okay, we're not really in the mood to laugh. We're in the mood to hear something a little more heavy. So I go that direction. But sometimes the longer you go, I mean, then later you'll, I'll make some funny comment. I'm like, oh, I got him with that yeah. one. So it's, it's, man, it's hard to know. I think it's almost like a dance partner. And it takes yes. a little while before you recognize the left foot goes that way and their right foot backs up. And now, and then they recognize the cadence and they realize, oh, she's not taking herself that seriously. Maybe I can laugh and enjoy the ride. Yeah, it's it's funny because I've always said, like as a speaker, my favorite events, if it's if it's some sort of like sorority reunion where people are drinking at night, I'm like, that's the easiest audience ever. You know, like you mm-hmm. just, <laughs> but sometimes if you get like a daytime audience and it's a church and, you know, they're just more serious. And so you just, you don't know the balance of, and you don't know what people in the audience are dealing with. Right. And so it's just, it's, it, it is every, to me, every event, even if it's the same talk, can go so differently. You've written a children's book. And I'm gonna gonna share a title and I would imagine our listeners will all think, well, that's the children's book. So here it is, The Antelope in the Living Room. (laughs) I mean, if if that doesn't sound like a children's book, what does, but you laugh. So tell our audience why you're laughing. So The Antelope in the Living Room is not my children's book. Um, it is actually a book that I wrote about marriage. I always tell people it is not a how-to in any way. If you were looking to improve your marriage, don't read this book. Go get somebody else. Go get a psychologist who can help you. It really is a funny, lighthearted look that hopefully you will read and go, okay, well, at least I know we're normal. Like we may not be perfect, but like all my aggravations at my spouse or the things that annoy me or the things that I love and that endear me to him are normal. So that is what Antelope in the Living Room is about. And the title comes from when my husband and I got in one of the biggest fights of our marriage, when he had, 
I knew in my, he's a hunter. And so I knew in my head that he had told me that he had shot this antelope, a Nilgai antelope, which if you look that up is not really a pretty majestic animal. It's just huge. That he had shot one, what he had failed to mention was that he was having it stuffed and mounted. And he surprised me. I came home from a long trip. I was already tired and he had hung it on our living room wall. <laughs> and I really lost my mind. I was like, are you kidding me? Like that can't stay there. And the way he had hung it, it was right by our front door. So I said, it looks like it was running down the street and crashed through the front of our home. Like that's not okay. And he was so hurt and so mad that I thought what nobody talks about in marriage instead of the elephant in the living room, it's the antelope in the living room. Mm. So it's a great book. It's a wonderful read. It's so honest. And uh, as a male, I connected with your husband. I feel his pain, brother. So give him a hug for me tonight. I'm going to read something you wrote about him, though, because I think in any good marriage, this is said by one spouse to the other. So here it okay. is. And, and then I'm going to ask you for your reaction to what this means. When I look in his eyes, I don't see perfection. I don't see a love story that would necessarily be something people would watch on a big screen or dream about. I see someone who will fight for me and protect me and love me in spite of all the ways I am still a wreck. I see home. Wherever he is, that's my home. Yeah. And I still feel that way about him. I really do. I mean, even on the days that he drives me crazy. And listen, I know I drive him crazy, but I, for me, as a kid who grew up with divorced parents and was always in search of that family, I feel like he has been all my dreams come true in terms of the stability he's offered me, how faithful he is, how loyal he is, how protective he is, even when it drives me crazy. I mean, if I'm going out of town, he's like, do you have your flashlight? Do you have your headlamp? Do you have your, you know, whatever? Do you have your pepper spray? Do you? And I'm like, it's fine. Like I'm going to Dallas. I'm not right. traveling over, you know, we're not going anywhere dangerous, but he is, he's, he is, he really is my, my rock. And I look at so much of who I am and think that God brings our spouses into our lives for all kinds of reasons, but I think he's made me better in so many ways. What would you say to one of our listeners? And there are many right now listening who say good for her, but that's not my experience. My spouse is not who I think of when I think of home and that relationship that she's bragging on. I understand it's not perfect, but, but mine's not even average. It's, it's absent. What, what, what would you say to someone who doesn't have a relationship with their spouse right now? I think it's tough. And I think it's, I, th- I think marriage is work. I think all marriages are work. And I mean, when I say that he's not perfect, I mean, I say that we have had probably years, I mean, like, you know, different times in our marriage where I'm like, I don't know that we're going to make it. Like, is our story going to be that we were married for 15 years and we were done? Because I, I think you have to make the choice to fall in love again. I know for me, I always go back to when we're in one of those hard spots that I'm I'm like, I need to go back and remember that somewhere this is what I prayed for and he is what I prayed for. And so to try to get back to that, and if you can just start by seeing one good thing, like here's one good thing he does. Um, and <laughs> and somebody who's older and wiser than me said one time, they said the, sometimes the best part of be, staying married is being glad later that you did. Mm. And I think that's so true. And I think about that all the time. Sometimes when you're in it and you're doing the work, you're like, I don't know that this is worth it. But I think if you could look down the line, I think if you if there's any way to fight for that, and of course that doesn't go to abusive relationships or relationships like that, but I'm saying if there's any good there, is it worth fighting for? You wrote a, another book called Sparkly Green Earrings. Talk about that title and why'd you write it? 
that was my very first book. That was my first baby. It's about motherhood. And it ends when my daughter was eight. So that tells you how long ago it was that I wrote that book because she's 16 now, which is just so hard to believe. But really, when I had started my blog and all of that back in 2006, the whole focus was on motherhood. I mean, the, really, the main reason I started writing was because she was about to be three, and I just wanted to write down memories and things that she was saying and doing. And I'm not a scrapbooker. So I was like, a book makes sense. So I had written this blog and and I just thought there's so many things about motherhood that people don't tell you. And I think we're better about it now because I think with Instagram and social media, you see more of that. But I think you wonder like, am I the only one who feels like I'm gonna lose my mind when my kindergartner needs to pick out her own outfit every day? Like, am I the only one that's completely sleep deprived and fantasizes about running away to a hotel for a couple of nights? <laughs> All those things that motherhood is the best and hardest thing that you'll ever do. And so that was really why I wrote Sparkly Green Earrings. And the title came from right towards the end of the book for Caroline's eighth birthday, she wanted to go get her ears pierced. And when she went, she chose the sparkliest, greenest earrings that they had. And just that my wish for her and my prayer as a mother is that I would always help her sparkle like those earrings. Mm. So I'm gonna share my favorite quote from that book and it is this, and then I'd like your, uh, I'd love your feedback on it. Okay. Here's what you wrote. Real motherhood is different. It's better and it's messier and it's way more complicated. It will break your heart and make you laugh harder than you ever imagined. You find yourself alternating in between feeling like your friends talked you into some sort of pyramid scheme <laughs> so you could share in their misery and thinking this is the most fulfilling thing you have ever done in your life. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I still feel every bit of that. I mean, it's so, see, that just gets me right now because I'm just, I'm, I'm at the point of, you know, she's leaving in a year and a half and, um, and it's just, it's such a, it, it is, it's, it's, it's the hardest thing to have these little people who are your whole world and your whole heart. And you didn't know you could love something that much that basically for years, just thinks you're there at their disposal for whatever they need. And you adore them and you pour into them and it's so much hard work. I mean, you know, and I always say those younger years, it's like the sleepless nights and the toddlers and the how many times do I have to roll this ball across the floor? And, you know, how many walks do we have to go on around the block and all that stuff? And now the teen years, my best friend and I call it houseplant parenting, where we just sit here like a houseplant until they notice us, you know, like we just, we just were here. But it's just, it's the greatest joy of my life has been, being a mom. I, I think there's nothing that's more fulfilling than that, than to see these little people turn into these amazing people. And the shame of it all is, is just when they turn into these super fun, yeah. funny, great, fully functioning people that can make their own sandwich, like it's time for them to go off to college. And you're like, well, that doesn't really seem fair. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of months ago, I interviewed Lisa Brennan Jobs, who is the daughter of Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And many of you have heard of Steve Jobs. He's made a few inventions. He's made a little bit of money. <laughs> he made a little bit of a difference. And yet yeah. he was completely absent in Lisa's childhood and adolescence and life. And at the very end of his life, the last words he spoke to his daughter were these. And I won't get them verbatim, but they were generally these. Mm -hmm. Sorry, kiddo. I wish I could do a, a do-over with you mm. next time. Mm. And for her, she says in response to that, yeah, uh, I would give anything for the iPhone not to have been invented for me to get five more minutes with my dad. Ugh. So for our parents listening right now, whether they have little ones in diapers and they are cursing the Cheerios on the floor or they are walking the halls waiting for their teenagers to finally get home at, after hmm. midnight, 
or they're waiting for the phone to ring from their 30-something-year-old who hasn't called in too long. What, what would you say to the parents right now about being actively involved and patiently involved in their children's lives? I heard that interview that you did with Lisa, and I thought it it was so validating to me in so many ways because there were so many things I turned down so that I can just be home and be Caroline's mom. Speaking opportunities and and things that I don't do because I want to be home. And, you know, it's funny when you turn down these speaking events and you're like, well, I can't because she's got a soccer game that night. But I'm like, this is this is what I can't get back. And if you've got the little kids, and listen, I know older ladies in grocery stores tell you this all the time and you makes you want to roll your eyes, but it goes so fast. It just goes so fast, you won't even believe it. And I know that's hard to believe when you're covered in spit up and Cheerios and you're just trying to get everybody to bed. But I just think the most important thing we do is to pour into our kids. I think they're the next generation. And I think I don't really care about anything I achieve as much as I want to equip her to be all that she was created to be. What's the best thing you've done as a parent? And I don't mean, uh, we went to Disney World three years ago, John. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, what's, what's a lesson that I, a father of four, and all of our listeners who have kids of various ages, or they're aunts and uncles, and they just want to be great aunts and uncles. What's one thing that you're looking back on the journey 16 years in that you realize, man, I'm really glad we did this? I think, and I had an older friend who had older kids tell me this when Caroline was little, and I've I've always taken it to heart and I've always done it, is she said, you need to listen to them now if you want them to keep talking to you later. And we always gave Caroline a voice and we always listened to her. And we always, I mean, even if it was when she was four and we had to listen to her talk about her snail dying and how sad she was about that, like we listened and we always showed up. And so I think, she knows from us that we always want to hear what's going on with her. And because of that, she still talks to us. I mean, now not all the time. It's not like we're having these deep talks every single night, but mm-hmm. she knows when she has a problem, when there's something that's bothering her, she knows that she can come to us and that we're going to hear her and that we're not going to judge her. And I think to keep those lines of communication open or everything. Speaking of not judging her, social media <laughs> leads to a lot of wonderful things. But on the the darker side, it also leads to judgment from others. You've received a lot of blowback in your career for various comments, some of them so minute, some of them releasing little animals into nature. I mean, (laughs) but the way the internet takes very seriously these things and will try to incite riots, how do you respond to the naysayers in your life, whether they're a neighbor or there's someone halfway around the world who is judging you for the way you parent or for the way you, you write? I will be the first to own. I don't I don't handle criticism well and I know I don't. It goes into my people pleasing nature. And so I'm somebody who like, if you've left me a bad review on Amazon, I'm sorry I haven't read it because I can't go on and read my bad reviews on Amazon. I just know that I can't. And that is really a lot of how I've handled it for better or for worse is I just don't pay attention to it. Like I really try to keep my focus on this is where I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I can't pay attention to the to the negative because there can be so much of it out there. And, you know, there are times that it's unavoidable, but it's also good to remember that the people who know me in my real life and know who I am and know what I'm about know that that thing is not true of me. Um, mm. and, I, and I know it's not true of myself. And so, you know, am I going to let some strangers make me feel terrible about myself or am I going to believe the people who actually know me and, and love me and, and know more of me than the 2% of me that they see online? Mm. 
You wrote a new book. It's coming out in five days. So congratulations on it. On the bright side, why why'd you write on the bright side? I wrote on the bright side because I am at a point where I got so tired of when I started writing that book. I was like, the world feels so dark. It's everywhere you turn. It's how terrible everything is, how terrible politics are, how terrible the world is, how terrible all these things going on. There's so much hate on Twitter and social media where everybody just turns on each other. And it's that very thing where you're like, why are we being the judge and jury for these random strangers on the internet that we know nothing about, that we're gonna judge their parenting, we're gonna judge their marriage, we're gonna judge the way they spend their money or all these things. And I get it because it's all out there for public consumption, which it's never been before. But I thought that the problem is, is we've forgotten to look for the light and we've forgotten to look for the good in people and we've forgotten to look for all the good that's in the world. And I think when all you want to look at and find is the darkness, then that's all you're going to find. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted this book to be a reminder to me as I wrote it and to people who read it that, hey, there is always a bright side because I really do believe that. You write about a whole lot of beautiful things in the book, including the value and the importance and the impact of words. So I want you to share the incident at Target that involved your two dogs, Piper and Mabel. Yes. I, um, so I, you know, I have my neighborhood target, like we all have our neighborhood target that we go to and we accidentally spend a hundred dollars every time we go. And I was there one day. My my wife does. She (laughs) saves $30 every time she goes, but comes back with a hundred dollar receipt. So I'm not sure how that works, but we save so much money by shopping. It's crazy. I know. I call that shopping math and it really, it works out. You just have to trust us on that. So I was at our neighborhood Target. It was about 1.30 in the afternoon. I'd been running errands all day. I hadn't stopped to have lunch. Um, So I was starving, you know, just that kind of like hangry where, I mean, my stomach was eating itself. And I was in the line at Target and I was getting a couple of things that I needed. And then I also get these dog treats for my dogs every time I go to Target. And so I'd thrown those in and I looked up and the cashier was this cashier that I've had several times before. And she is very sweet and she is very good at her job, but she wants to make conversation with you. And I was not in the mood for conversation. I wanted to check out. I wanted to, I had Whataburger in my sights. I needed a cheeseburger in my immediate future. And so I knew she was going to ask me, she's always like, well, what kind of dogs do you have? And then I tell her we have blue laces, which a lot of people don't know what those are. And so I thought, and then she's like, well, what do they look like? Well, what do they do? Well, are they energetic? Well, are they big? Well, what happens? Who do they vote for? What's their political affiliation? And I was like, I cannot deal with all these questions today. So I was like, I'm going to go totally, like when she asked me, it was just knee jerk response. And she was like, oh, look, dog treats. What kind of dogs do you have? And I thought, what's the most vanilla dog out there that everybody knows? And I was like, we have labs. And I thought that would solve it. And she was like, oh, labs. How are labs different than golden retrievers? What color are they? What kind of labs do they have? Are they energetic? And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I totally just lied to the cashier at Target and it didn't even pay off because I still have to answer these questions. Words matter. Words matter. It was like, I should have just gone. I was like, it's just a lesson. If we say these knee-jerk things and you're like, this was so stupid and it was trying to solve something and sometimes you just have to think about what you say before you say it. You know, Melanie, we we all have to be mindful of what we say, but we also have to be mindful of our attitude and our anxiety and our fears. You as a mother, as a spouse, as a daughter, as a leader, as an author, podcast host, you've also, you deal with a lot of fears yourself, like all of us. How do you handle your fears in a healthy way? I have learned, you know, sometimes I can go, if I keep them to myself, I feel like they spiral. Like if I sit there and I just go down that bad road on my own. Um, So 
part of me has learned that if I'll speak them out loud, that that helps. If I say, here's what I'm really afraid of. Because number one, it helps me identify what I'm really afraid of. A lot of times then when you say it out loud, you also hear how absurd it sounds, which is good. And then, and my husband's really good about saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so then you're like, oh, okay, that <laughs> I get it. That is kind of dumb. But I also think it's the trusting, it's going back to the trust of that God is sovereign and he is in control and that he is good. And here's the whole thing about life. And I think this is why we have those fears is because we know bad things happen. They just, they do. Whether you have faith or don't have faith or whatever, bad things happen. But I also believe that we weren't meant to live afraid. And so it's, it's for me, it's going back to the truth of that God is good and he is in control and, and, and trusting him with that thing. And I mean, and I say that as a mother who's, daughter just started driving like six months ago. So my prayer life has increased exponentially. Wisely so. And I'm going to share with you a quote that I pulled out of your book that I love. Here it is. One of the greatest tricks the enemy can play on us is to convince us nothing is worth the fight. Mm. Talk about that. I just believe that that's one of the, I think the greatest thing is if if the enemy, because I, you know, and I always tell my daughter this too, is I'm like, once we are living a life that is with Christ. And once we have that power and once we are saved, the only way that the enemy can really get to us is to keep us discouraged and to keep us afraid and to trick us into believing that our voice doesn't matter um, and that there are things that aren't worth the fight. And I believe with everything in me that we have to fight against that and that there are things that are worth the fight and there are things that are worth standing up for and that there are things worth championing and, and that it's worth overcoming our fears and our own insecurities. Because I think at the end of people's lives, I don't, I don't think you regret your failures as much as you just regret not trying. Mm. The final question before we shift into the Live Inspired 7 you're speaking to our audience, and these are made up of leaders who are dealing with their own challenges at home, at work, in finances, in health, emotionally, with family. You name the area. We got stuff going on. Mm-hmm. What's what's one invitation that you might offer them today? One, one idea, one technique, one tool, one concept that they could apply in their daily lives that may free them to live on the bright side? To me, I th- the biggest thing that can do is I think challenges come and struggles come and hard times are going to come no matter where you are in life. But I think, number one, if your life is centered on Christ, I think that makes all the difference in the world because the the thing that sustains me and keeps me grounded is finding the light in every situation. Because if you look for the light, I feel like you'll always find the light. For me, that's having my life centered in who God created me to be and and finding purpose in that. Melanie Schenkel, you are now stepping into what we call the Live Inspired 7. And I understand you've heard a few of our podcasts, but here we go. Question number one, I know you're a prolific writer, but also a reader. So what is the best book you've ever read? Oh my gosh, that's a terrible question. Um, My... (laughs) I mean, it's a great question, but how do I pick? That's like asking me, I could pick, pick my favorite, favorite child, child because I have only. Um, I One of my favorite books of all time is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. You know, I've heard you say that before, and you are our third guest to say Lonesome Dove. Okay, it's, I, a, great, it's a great book. I've never read it, and people who read it love it. Yeah, you need to fix that, John. I know you're busy, but pick up that book and read it. It's a great one. What, what's so great about it? It's just, it, I mean, I think part of it is I'm a Texas girl, so I love that whole aspect of it, but it's just such a well-written, I love a well-written epic 
story. And that to me is what it is. Is It's just a saga. I love Gone with the Wind would be one of my other favorite books of all time for that same reason. I just love to pick up a big, thick book that is an epic saga and get lost in it. Mm. Well, Melanie, we have a book coming out in May called In Awe, and we're going to teach people how to return to that childlike wonder they once possessed. So that's where question number two comes from. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think just total freedom to be exactly what I was. I think when you're a kid, you don't overthink things. I think you just do them. Awesome. Freedom. If your home caught fire, your crazy dogs are out safe, your daughter's (laughs) out, your husband has saved the antelope, they're out safe. All living things are outside and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item from that burning home. What's that one thing you come racing back out with? I think photo albums, which I know sounds antiquated, but I do have photo albums where they are not on digital anywhere. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to on that bench? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, This is going to sound, this is is a random one. I don't know. I can't. um, I think Mother Teresa because I think her whole mission and the way she was able to live her life is so amazing. Um, and then on the total other end of the spectrum, because I'm reading a book about him right now, is Alexander Hamilton. Wow. <laughs> Are you singing while you read? I am. I am. I'm going to sing him all the songs. <laughs> um, but no, I just, I think he's such a fascinating, and he's somebody that, I mean, in, in truth, until the musical Hamilton came out, I had never given any thought to Alexander Hamilton. But now I'm so intrigued by his whole life and his story. For those who haven't read the book, don't know history or haven't uh, <laughs> followed us, followed Hamilton on Broadway, what's so intriguing about Alexander Hamilton? To me, the fact that he somehow had this, the wherewithal to, to raise himself up from this orphan child who by all accounts should have been left in the West Indies somewhere and never become anything to become one of our founding fathers and have the impact on our on our government and our um, our monetary system and all of that that he did is mm. astounding. Like, how on earth do you even do that? Back, especially back in that time. Mm-hmm. What's the best advice you've ever received? I think what I said earlier. I think sometimes the best part of, st- of staying married is being glad later that you did. What would you tell your twenty year old self? To hang on, it gets better. Mm. You know, I I hope the 20-year-olds tuning in right now hear that loud and clear from Melanie Schenkel, but I also hope everybody over the age of 20 heard that as well. Hang on. Mm -hmm. It gets better, man. It gets better. In 2018, 1.6 million Americans attempted to take their own life. Wow. And I think we need that echo loud and clear on this podcast and beyond. Hang on. It's going to get better. And the best is yet to come. I, I absolutely believe that. I mean, I, and I know this sounds very Pollyanna, but I believe, I really do believe every year of my life feels like it's been better than the last. Well, Melanie Schenkel, who is living today the best year of her life, which is awesome, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Mm, I think she was full of joy and showed it to everyone around her. Melanie Schenkel was indeed full of joy, has revealed that joy and that light to everyone around her. Melanie, where can we learn more about this joy that you share? You can find me at melanieschenkel.com. 
You can find me on Instagram as Melanie Shankle. You can find me on Twitter as Big Mama, which I know is <laughs> random, but that was the name of my blog. And that's when Twitter started. That's what I called it. Um, but really the best place is Instagram. That's where everything is. And then all of my books are available anywhere online that you buy books or in your local bookstore. The book on the bright side comes out next week. Melanie Shankle, thank you for making time for us. My friends, that is Melanie Shankle. I am John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live on the bright side and live inspired. Well, thanks for joining me on today's Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, make sure that you rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word and it ensures that people can more easily find our podcast. We are available for free. That's good news at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else that you are streaming your audio. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on what you've heard today and how to apply it in your life. We've got a lot of awesome episodes lined up for you in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be looking forward to welcoming you back next time.